The whole world is moving away from the Western Alliance. The Western Alliance is now, what, 1.2 billion people? The rest of the world is the thick end of another seven. And, I mean, you know, the Western Alliance has lost the plot completely. So, not good news, I'm afraid. This is Kaiser Johnson with Liberty and Finance, and this is the Miles Franklin Weekly Special for December 20th through December 27th, 2022, while supplies last. This week we feature backdated silver maples at $4.99 over spot, the lowest premium we've seen on maples in months. Made by the Royal Canadian Mint, these random year silver maples are known for their purity, beauty, and recognizability. One of the most popular silver bullion coins in the world. Their four nines fine, or 99.99% pure silver, are only $4.99 over spot, and come 25 to a tube and 500 to a box, and are IRA eligible. Speaking of IRAs, if you'd like to learn more about a precious metals IRA, call us, and we'll be happy to help you in that process. Our number for all orders is 1-888-81-LIBERTY. That's 1-888-815-4237. We're available after hours and on weekends, and we look forward to speaking with you. Welcome back to Liberty and Finance. We're always privileged to have this distinguished returning guest, Alistair McLeod, a former bank director and now the head of research at goldmoney.com, joins us again this Tuesday, December 20th, 2022. Alistair, thanks for coming back on Liberty and Finance. That's my pleasure, DK. We're always grateful for your presence here, and this may be our last opportunity in 2022. So we're grateful that you've been with us over the years and over the quarters and the months, helping to keep us aware of big picture items that are happening in the global banking system. You've talked to us and alerted us to fragility and uh, strains in the banking system and in currencies. Uh, one thing, before we get to viewers' questions, one thing that we've seen just recently is uh, the Bank of Japan, who had drawn a line in the sand at 0% and then said, no, 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 actually the line is at 0.25%, and then, no, 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 no okay, now, now it's 0.5%. Can you talk to us about what their attempts, perhaps futile, but very determined to defend their uh, their lines in the sand, what that means for them and what it maybe foreshadows for the rest of the financial world. Yes, I mean, that is a major development. Um, and uh, when I woke up this morning, um, I couldn't believe my eyes. Um, it, you know, they, they had literally backed off. But the amazing thing about it is that the largest holder of um, uh, JGBs, Japanese government bonds, of course, is the Bank of Japan. I mean, they've been doing QE since the year 2000 I mean, it's just remarkable they i mean you know they have acquired i think it's almost sort of half the jgb market so by um uh raising the um intervention rate as it were from uh, 0.25 to a maximum of 0.5 percent uh, basically they bankrupted themselves because on a mark-to-market basis the value of their bonds, I mean, before it had actually wiped out <clears throat> um, uh, any equity on the uh, Bank of Japan's balance sheet. But now, I mean, they're so far underwater, it's, it's crazy. Uh, this wouldn't not norm normally matter too much. But bear in mind that the commercial banks are very, very highly leveraged. What they have done uh, is uh, they have tried to maintain their profits at a time of uh, heavily compressed 
lending margins, which is the effect of negative interest rates. Um, and so they are um, more than 20 times geared on the relationship between balance sheet assets and balance sheet equity. But of course, not all that equity either is um, really counts from the point of view of tier one. You know, the, if you like, as far as the Basel regulations are concerned, the, 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 the equity that matters, you've got to take out things like, um, you know, credits for tax. You've got to take out goodwill and all the rest. Of it. And the idea is that you can't get down to actually what is in there, uh, which belongs to the shareholders and, you know, actually exists, as it were. And um, I mean, even the American banks have a problem with that, let alone um, the Japanese banks, which, as I say, have this um, uh, debt to equity ratio in excess of, of 20 times. And of course, they also have um, investments in the bond markets, in the Japanese government bond markets, corporate loans and all the rest of it. And uh, those loans, the value, the market value of those loans will have shifted against them very heavily. So um, I'm not quite sure why it is that the Bank of Japan has taken this moment to suddenly change the level at which um, it is controlling the market. Um, was it forced to do so by um, its competitors turning around, um, competitors, confrères, if you like, like the Fed and the ECB and all the rest of it? Because these guys all talk together and they agree a common uh, interest rate um, uh, uh, policy. Uh, and uh, certainly the, the Bank of Japan has been left behind. Now, it hasn't, so far as I can see, done anything about interest rates. It's just merely uh, altered the level at which it um, uh, intervenes in, in uh, along the yield curve. And, you know, when we're talking about um, half a percent, we're talking about half a percent yield on the 10-year JGBs. Now, um, to be fair to um, the Japanese, um, they have an economy which is far more savings driven than anything that we're accustomed to. What this means is that when um, the amount of currency and credit is expanded, uh, people tend not to rush out and spend it on consumer goods like we do. Uh, they tend to save it. Um, and uh, so what happens is that it then gets recycled, if you like, into investment. Um, and uh, industry takes this and, uh, you know, has a very cheap source of finance and a stable source of finance. That's been Japan's strength, despite all this, um, if you like, the sins of QE, which, as I say, they've been indulging since the year 2000. Um so they do have a, a low um, uh, rate of inflation. But having said that, uh, most of the elements in the inflation index, or um, right, not most, that's, not, that's a bit of an exaggeration. I think it's something like 40 percent of the index is subsidized by, um, uh, you know, gov government, well, government subsidies, you know, things like transport costs, food costs, all these various things. There is a very high level of subsidization, which distorts the, the numbers. And so, um, why have they done this? I mean, basically, they've put themselves into a real financial difficulty. They're putting the whole of their 
banking system into financial difficulty. I mean, it could be that the banks have told the Bank of Japan, look, you know, uh, with bond yields where they are, we've got no spreads, we can't do anything. Um, and this way, I mean, the money's just basically running out the door. That is certainly possible. But the problem is that when they start raising rates, they've given it in at a half percent. What's the next level going to be? You know, that's going to look like, is it going to be three quarters of a percent? Um, how long is it going to take to get to one percent, two percent, three percent? So you can see where this is going. I mean, I think they've rather started a trend over which they are um, likely to lose control. And um, on that basis, I think it's actually a very, very serious development. And it's something we need to watch very, very carefully. That's uh, one of the things that a lot of people in the U.S. have been concerned about as well is these these lines in the sand. Uh, in fact, right now, right now, the U.S. Congress is in heated debate about uh, the budget completely running uh, out. We can't, we can't, we have to shut down the government if we don't pass this 1.6 trillion dollar uh, funding bill, etc. These these lines in the sand about debt ceilings or or uh, banks drawing lines in the sand and saying, well, we won't pass that line because we're going to defend that line. You've talked to us about the mathematical, basically the imperative that says this thing is an exponential growth curve, this debt, this this runaway uh, debt and, and interest. Can you give us a better understanding of why it's maybe just futile posturing on the part of these uh, government governments all around the world saying that they're and, and central banks saying that they're going to draw lines in the sand in in the way of mathematics well i think i think that i think the sort of um, line in the sand in america is a very good example of um the futility of uh the democratic process trying to um you know put roadblocks in front of government spending i mean you know um i don't know how many times um the the debt ceiling has been raised. But I think um, I have a sort of memory that some time ago it was over 70 times, something like that. I'm talking about the American debt ceiling. In other words, it's a given that as soon as you get to the ceiling, it'll get raised. So, you know, from a point of view of uh, government spending money or finding that it's got demands to spend money, that is not a problem as far as they're concerned. Um, You know, it's just a charade you go through. Um, and I mean, we had, I think COVID is a very good example. Um, when we got out of COVID, um, I think, or sorry, when we went into COVID, I think the common thought on, you know, on everybody's mind was that, um, the government had to spend an, a lot of money basically because the economy was locked down. It had to make sure that, um, you know, people didn't go bankrupt, um, Businesses would survive and all the rest of it. And this required the government to throw money at the problem at a time when tax revenue was collapsing. So the budget deficit, I mean, it just just soared. I can't remember what the figures were, but I mean, you know, we were looking at, um, you know, a combination of rocketing uh, spending and uh, collapsing uh, revenue. Um, and. When you go into that, you sort of think, well, look, this is temporary. This is this is just a specific problem <clears throat> which governments have to deal with, and we just have to accept it. Um, and we accepted the helicopter drop and all this sort of stuff. But uh, <clears throat> the problem then is um, when you start coming out of it, 
oh, we've got another problem. Um, supply chains are not working. So um, this means that businesses have to be supported through this, you know, the chaos of supply chains and all the rest of it. We do what we can to get things moving, clear the ports in the Pacific like San Francisco and all the rest of it. But, you know, they're still queuing up. They can't get in. The truckers won't go. And, oh, I mean, it's just an absolute nightmare. Then we have another nightmare, and that is that Mr. Putin goes, decides to invade Ukraine. So energy prices soar. Oh, no, this is another problem. How do we do, deal with this? Well, at that time, you still had MMT people running around saying you can print as much money as you like because <laughs> as long as you owe it in your own currency, who cares? Which I, I'm paraphrasing what you know the, the 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 theory a bit, but basically that's what it was. Yeah, it would be it would be far too too uh, understandable and transparent if they actually used a common language rather than the, calling everything the opposite of what it is and making it three thousand pages long so nobody can read it till they pass it. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I I go along with that entirely. So um, you know you can see how it's one thing after another, and now what do we see now? Well. Um, we can see that uh, interest rates are having to rise. Why? Because prices are rising. Why are prices rising? Prices are rising because of all the money printing or the currency printing that happened before. But we can blame it on the Russians. We can blame it on supply chain problems. We can blame it on COVID. Blame it on anything. But the fact is that when you expand the quantity of credit at the central bank level, what you're doing is you're saying you don't have to choose between buying this or that. You can buy this and that. So inevitably, prices start rising across the board. And um, now we have a problem, and that is that we can see that rising interest rates, you've got all these malinvestments, so businesses will be going bust. Importantly, and this is a thing that not many people seem to understand, um, it's actually part of a bank credit cycle. Um, you know, banks, when banks start worrying about the security of, um, their assets, the, the, the loans they make to businesses, the bonds they have got on their balance sheet, um, the, you know, the sort of, if you like, corporate bonds and uh, securitized co corporate bonds they've got on their balance sheet. When they start going down in value, what do they do? They're highly leveraged. Say, well, we've got to, we've got to reduce our, our our risk exposure because they start worrying about risk rather than thinking about profits. And uh, we had that very clearly back, I think, in June when Jamie Dimon stood up and said, um, you know, two weeks ago, uh, I reckon the economy was facing a storm. And now I think that's gone up to hurricane force. And you had a very, very clear indication from the most powerful commercial banker in the world that he was going to reduce his balance sheet or reduce the risk in his balance sheet, which amounts to more or less the same thing. Um, so what happens then? Well, you know, you take the money out of the economy or the credit out of the economy, you get a recession. And uh, so now we have a recession. How is that going to be dealt with? Well, um, bank credit, commercial bank credit will simply be replaced by um, government deficits, enhanced government deficits, because there will be falling revenue and there will be rising welfare costs. And guess what? Um, the whole thing is run by Keynesians who believe that the only way you really deal with the recession is to stimulate your way out, out of it. So there'll be, you know, the MMTers will be back again in force, um, you know, saying you've got to expand the quantity of money in circulation. You've got to, you know, you've got to do what you can to um, 
replace contracting bank credit. And so, <clears throat> you know, this is just going from one step to a higher step to a higher step to a higher step in terms of the required uh, production of currency from the central bank. And, um, you know, when we sort of think back to COVID and we had a one off, as it were, um, you know, well, sure, one off has become two off, three off, four off, and it's ad infinitum. So as to your point about this going out on an exponential basis, and of course, <laughs> the more credit there is in circulation at the central bank level, the less the purchasing power of that credit. So the more credit you've got to produce in order to have the same uh, effect. And so the thing is effectively out of control. That's what it boils down to. This leads into two questions. I, I'll try to ask them one at a time. Paul Hunt says, Alistair, do you think the markets, bonds, stocks, commodities, huge derivative positions and fiat currencies are all primed and imminently due for a massive historical correction? Yeah, I mean, the root of it is is interest rates and uh, bond yields, um, because all financial asset value valuations take their cue from uh, the yield along, you know, in, in, in the bond market, whether it's sort of short, medium or long term. And um, I mean, just look at the rate of inflation, price inflation. Uh, you know, we're looking at rates which in Europe are over 10 percent, um, in America are about 7 percent. Um, that's official. Um, probably somewhat higher in reality. Um, the hope is that and this is a central bank's hope that um, it's going to drop off and come back to, you know, 3% rather than 2%. I think they're now saying, <clears throat> oh, come on, this is just wishful thinking. I mean, you know, anyone with a half a brain can understand that uh, with all the expansion of credit at the central bank level, they've just basically debased the currency, which is reflected in continuing rising prices. Um <clears throat> Uh, but, you know, we're sort of we're in a bit of no man's land at the moment because uh, you've got everybody expecting the Fed to pivot. And they, you know, if they can, they will. <laughs> that I think we can be sure. Um, but <clears throat> at the same time, this inflation problem is really very persistent. And what are interest rates? They've raised them to what? So, so four and a quarter to four and a half percent. Current rate of inflation, seven percent. Now, this isn't even dealing with the problem yet. Um if you're going to compensate uh, the foreign exchanges um, who will be looking at the uh, yield on their dollars, if you're going to compensate them for the loss of purchasing power of the dollars, you're nowhere near it yet. Nor, incidentally, is the Bank of England, nor, incidentally, is the Bank of Japan, nor, incidentally, is the ECB. So all the major central banks have exactly the same problem. They're just trying to sit on the whole thing and not... Um, exacerbate the problem by raising interest rates unnecessarily. I mean, we've got a lot of jaw-jaw about how, you know, we're going to be tough on interest rates. We're going to raise it three quarters of a percent. And, you know, now we're raising it a half percent, but we're not done yet. You know, this is all talk. I mean, it's, you know, the fact of the matter is that interest rates have not caught up with uh, the debasement problem of the currency. There's still more to go. And as to, was it Paul's point um, about uh, financial assets, that means that the yield on government bonds, from which everything takes its cue, um, uh, has further to rise after a bit of a pause, maybe. Yeah, sure. We've, ha we've been having that pause for the last year. Um, 
uh, well, not quite last year, really from about October. Uh, and, um, yeah, I mean, when yields start rising again, bond yields start rising again, that means that bond prices fall. It means that equity markets fall. You will get increased bankruptcies um, because there's so, there's so much in the way of malinvestments in every economy. Uh, and uh, so the risk, if you like, the spread, the risk spread between, um, you know, sort of bond yields and equities is going to increase as well. I mean, I, I, I just can't, um, I, I wouldn't be able to justify telling anyone to buy equities at this level because I just see there's just, uh, you know, I can see what's going to happen. Anyone that can actually see what was going to happen. But, you know, there's always a latency in markets and we see this particularly in, in, in cryptocurrencies. I mean, <laughs> you know, whenever I comment on cryptocurrencies on, on, on Twitter, um, you know, I get people coming back saying, you should stick to gold. You know nothing about it. <laughs> you know, um, it, they're in denial is the answer, um, Donegan. Just complete denial. And, um, there's the same with, with bonds and equities. I mean, you know, if you want to be in a market which has got the potential to fall as much as it fell in between 1929 and 1932, then good luck to you. But I wouldn't recommend it. That is for sure. Well, there's an old saying in the preparedness community, I'd rather be seven years early than one day late. In other words, when you're making preparations for a potential upset, uh, you don't want to wait until it actually happens and then think, ah, I better get ready for that storm or that whatever it is. Uh, there's a question here from Tom Varco who said, Alistair, in a previous year, you said the dollar would collapse by year end. I think it was maybe a banking collapse, reminiscent of John Law. It didn't. And how do you see that situation now? So many people appreciate your great work. Thank you. Well, it's very kind of you to say so. Um, I, timing, you know, I, I think I can pretty much see which way things are going, but timing is always. That's the one thing we would love to know. We would all be terribly rich. and We wouldn't be wasting our time, uh, you know, doing podcasts and telling everybody, you know, what we think. Um, timing is always, always um, the difficult thing. And it's generally a mistake. And it's a mistake I, you know, trap I fall into as well, to underestimate the ability of the authorities to put off the inevitable. And that happens all the time. We've had a GSIB uh, rescue already, which uh, was Credit Suisse. Um, that went really very smoothly. I think very few people actually noticed it. Uh, and, uh, but we will have other failures and, uh, th that will test us. I think that the, um, increase in the, um, in, in, in the yields on the 10 year, uh, Japanese government bond, um, and the, the Bank of Japan's policy on that, um, could be the beginning of something, um, which gets out of control. Uh, we've got so many other things which, which just basically don't look good. Um, and, uh, how are we going to deal with it? It's going to take, it, it takes time. But the one thing that I do know is that, um, we have a cycle of bank credit. When bank credit starts contracting, that is when you get a crisis and, um, you don't get a crisis every time, but in the current situation with banks balance sheets more highly leveraged than they have ever been in the past, this crisis, promises to be something larger than we have ever seen. Well, certainly since the 1930s. Um, you could say even um, including the 1930s. Uh, you know, the, the landscape is very, very different, so you can't make a direct comparison. But, 
Yeah, I mean, this is this is a very dangerous situation, and um, the authorities are desperate to retain control. And, you know, we get everybody saying, oh, there's going to be a reset. Now, why are they saying this? They're saying this. They're saying this because they realize that things aren't working as they should. Um, but, of course, the mistake that most people make when they're calling for a reset is they think governments just need to sort of somehow uh, move on to a different page and it'll all be all right. That's not how it works. Um, you know, you could have said that we should have had a reset in uh, 2006, 2007, when we began to see that liar loans and all the rest of it, we see which way that was going. Well, let's have a reset that nobody need go bust. Oh, come on, this is wishful thinking. Actually, what the reset is, is the market starts intervening uh, with, um, you know, and it imposes reality on um, monetary policy committees. And uh, and also governments and, um, you know, there's, it's a wake up call and that's going to happen again. But this time the question is, you know, what is their reaction going to be? Are they going to try and save the economy or are they going to try and save the currency? And it's as far as the currency is concerned with the dollar, this is a very serious situation because the rest of the world has realized the, you know, what the dollar is. It's a scam. Um, I mean, there's no other description for it. They've got something like 32, 32 trillion um, uh, invested in dollars, dollar assets, um, you know, um, treasury bills um, and uh, you know, bank balances all in dollars. Thirty two trillion. No, that, that's more, that's more, a lot more than uh, the United States gross domestic product. And um you know, there will come a point where suddenly these foreigners aren't going to be patient anymore. They're not going to sit there and get, you know, sort of minimal interest rate while the dollar's going down. They will sell it. And that's another source of crisis. How does the government fund itself when the foreigners are unwinding their positions? What does the Fed do? Does it stand to one side and say, uh, oh well, you know, we're not going to do um, we're not going to do quantitative easing because at the moment we're in quantitative tightening. Now, come on, you know, this is this is not realistic. There is a lot, I think, that is going to go wrong, um, and uh, I can't see any way in which it can be avoided. And the key thing in this uh, is to understand the consequences of rising interest rates. All that expansion uh, of credit. That happened from 1980 through to 2021. That is now being reversed. And the consequences of that are going to be extremely serious for everyone, not just Americans, but for everyone around the world. You went right where I thought we probably needed to go. And that was this east west split because you talked about what is this, this great reset? Is it going to be some government driven thing or what is it? And it seems to me that the pivot of much of the world away from the Western financial edifice is, in fact, one element of that reset. It's, it's basically uh, half or more of the world opting out, saying, OK, there's about to be a huge explosion in this room. We'd rather be somewhere else when that happens. Um, there's a question here from Clayton Gerke, who says, if all of the BRICS nations were to equally back their own currencies in gold, say 40%, would there still be a need to create a new currency, or would all of their currencies trade equally due to their gold backing? 
Well, it would depend. Um, gold backing is a sort of nice, easy phrase. Um, it depends how it's backed. I mean, by gold backing, do you mean the central bank is willing to exchange its banknotes for gold at a fixed rate? Um, which is what we had from 1817 to 1914. Um, or is this just something notional, like, um, you know, we've got lots of gold, so you don't need to worry about the purchasing power of your, you know, of, of, of your dinars or, you know, your yuan or whatever it might be. Um, and I think there's a big question mark over, over that. But, um, to come back to your basic point, um, I have no doubt that what you say is right, and that is that there is increasing concern in the East. And uh, when we're talking about the East, we're talking about the majority of the world's population. It's not just the East. It's it's now it's now um, you know Africa, South America as well. I mean, all these areas where. Um, you know, America feels that it's got, um, you know, the sort of the major force of influence and uh, uh, it's got the hegemony, if you like, uh, whereby it can control these nations that slipped away from it. Um, big, big mistake to turn around to the Russians and say, right, we're going to make all your foreign exchange valueless. All your reserves will be valueless. The one thing they couldn't do is do that to gold because there's no counterparty on, on with gold. Um, and uh, what's been happening since? Well, I mean, we've seen um, uh, extraordinary levels of um, central bank demand for gold. I mean, they've been in the market buying gold, according to the World Gold Council. I think in the last in the third quarter of this year, something like 400 tons were accumulated. Um, additional tons were accumulated by uh, the world central banks. A lot of these are in Asia, but they're all over the place. And um, <clears throat> it's the message was very, very clear that, um, uh, you know, we've got to get ourselves away from a currency which we can now see bears an inordinate amount of risk. And it's not just political risk either. Um, I mean, if you, if you sort of listen to what the Chinese have been saying for decades, um, they've known, as far as they're concerned, um, they have known that um, the, the dollar would eventually uh, disappear or collapse or um, be useless or um, become valueless because that's basically what um, the Marxian uh, economists have been teaching the Chinese universities, you know, in, in, in the last century. Um, so it's all it's you know, it's, it's always been inculcated in their minds that, um, you know, the, the whole of the Western um, uh, situation in terms of currencies and all the rest of it will come to an end. And do we want to be part of that? The answer is no. I mean, they were, they've, they've, they've ridden the tiger, as it were, um, uh, from uh, the end of um, Mao's time to the current day. But they're now getting extremely concerned about continuing that way. And we're making it easy for them to, to back out. I mean, we're turning around saying we don't want fossil fuels. So what do, what do the Gulf Cooperation Council do? They say, well... If you don't want our business, uh, then, uh, you know, we'll go and supply it to the Chinese and the Indians and anyone else who wants it in Africa or <laughs> Latin America. And, you know, meanwhile, we're placing ourselves at an energy disadvantage 
because we're we're relying on windmills that don't go round when the wind ceases, and we're relying on solar panels, which don't do much when the sun goes in. So, I mean, it, you know, it is complete chaos in the West. Whereas, you know, if you're if you've got half a brain in in Asia, you see this and you think we don't want to be part of that. I mean, they're not going to. They pay lip service to to um, this climate change thing, because nobody's going to stand up and, you know, when we're all so gung ho on climate change and all the rest, of it, nobody's going to actually stand up at the political level and deny it. What they'll basically do is they just say yes, 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 and when they go home, um, you know, open more coal-fired power stations, <laughs> dig the stuff out of the ground, burn it. You know, it's so. Um, you know, and we've fallen into this trap of, um, of really, it's, it's a sort of almost a socialist trap of getting away from what really matters in life. And that is the ability to make a living. You know, you know, we've emasculated ourselves from any ability to make a living. We have given away energy. We have turned our backs on all that. And, um, so, it's becoming clear that um, as far as the Chinese are concerned, I mean, you know, President Xi turns up and uh, he's welcomed in a way which Joe Biden would have loved to have. Um, you know, what was it? Two months ago, he tried to <laughs> try to go along and persuade the Saudis to to um, uh, expand their production and drive the price down. I mean, honestly, I if he thought that he was going to have, um, a, you know, a sort of positive reception with that message, um, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, but <laughs> it just wasn't going to happen. President Xi comes along with a completely different approach. He says, I want your oil. And um, we'll be long term customers. We've just done a deal with your friends in Qatar. Well, they're not really your friends, but, you know, the same sort of area uh, where we have agreed to take on their natural gas for 27 years. So we're very happy to do that with you. And not only that, but we will invest in Saudi Arabia. We will invest in, the in, in, in um, uh, you know, sort of transportation links and all the rest of it. Um, and uh, that way um, we can get a good thing going. You sell us our, you know, you sell sell oil to us, and we will recycle some of that back into Saudi Arabia. Is that a deal? MBS MBS says yes, please. <laughs> you know, the whole the whole world is moving away from the Western Alliance. The Western Alliance is now what 1.2 billion people. The rest of the world is the thick end of another seven. And, I mean, you know, the Western Alliance has lost the plot completely. So, not good news, I'm afraid. When you mentioned uh, all these central banks of the world outside the U.S. and Europe and Japan uh, accumulating gold massively uh, and avoiding this coming destruction that they have foreseen for a century of the Western financial system, it makes me picture uh, like a a sinking ocean liner where all the smart 
ones, all the clever ones, are getting in the lifeboats and 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 jettisoning off. But it seems like all of the BRICS plus nations are in the, jumping out in those lifeboats. Those lifeboats, uh, as you say, may represent also having real assets, commodities, and and including gold. Um, there's a question here from James Schonecker asking about those of us who are still on the on the sinking ocean liner. Uh, if my bank account is at risk, where do I put my cash? Brokerage, metals, credit unions, short-term treasuries? Uh, well, um, there the, are the two questions in that. Um, one is, uh, I mean, you know, it's not a question; it's a statement that, or effectively, a statement that um, uh, uh, you know, my bank account might be at risk. Uh, certainly possible. Um, I think it's less at risk than most people think, because the lesson from the Lehman crisis was that you don't muck around as a central bank trying to decide which bank deserves to be saved and which bank, you know, you, you let go to the wall. The answer basically is you have to save them all. That was a big lesson. Now, it's not quite so simple as that, because um in our idiocy, we uh, got the Bank of International Settlements to draw up some sort of uh, bail-in um, <laughs> system, which every, which every G20 nation had to pass in and incorporate in its legislation. So um, there may be some idiots out there um, at uh, the state level who actually think well, this is this is going to work, um, and they might try to bail in as opposed to bail out. So that could be a disaster. So if you see any signs of your jurisdiction um, moving towards a bail in, then certainly I would say that your bank account is unsafe. Now, the the purchasing power of that um, uh, deposit account, credit, if you like, that uh, is owed to you by a bank uh, is the second question. Um, that was asked, and uh, that is, where do you put it? What's the cash? You know, what's the? How do you preserve the value of that cash? Well, the answer, I think, is that you have to move from the world of credit into the world of money. Now, legally, there is only one form of money, and that is uh, metallic money. It's um, it's it's gold, and it's uh, it, it is gold at every level. Um, in the past, it has been silver. Um, uh, that will probably come back, but we don't know for certain. But it's a fair bet that um, people trying to get out of fiat currency, fiat credit, will also buy silver along with gold. Um, so that's really about the only thing you can do. And don't go for paper because paper is not physical money. Paper is, you know, I mean, if ETFs, things like that, they are just literally a, a representation. It's not the real thing. And um, I, I think there are other things you can do because you obviously got to live through a period of crisis, if um, I'm right, and um, these currencies are at great risk. Um, you have to eat. So you have to be able to grow your own food, ideally. Um, I would not live in a city. Um, that I think would, is, is, is a problem because whenever you get a collapse of the purchasing power of a currency, then, um, you know, basically cities are not the place to be because, um, nobody's going to sell, <laughs> nobody's going to sell you food. 
you know, and uh, but if you live in the country, then, you know, you could probably do something to earn your food. So there are things like that that you ought to consider. And it's the sort of thing which I suppose, I mean, uh, you know, preppers have been talking about for ages and ages and ages. Problem with, you know, if I can sort of mix two things together, the problem with being a prepper is that nowadays, you know, your tins of food have got sell-by dates on them. <laughs> and, you know, you find that um, with a delay, if you like, of, uh, you know, we know the whole thing's going to fall apart, but um, if it doesn't happen soon, all my tins are going to be out of date and I have to stock again. So anyway, well, that's a that's a separate issue. Well, Alistair, for those who want to follow your work more often than we can have you here on a monthly basis, uh, how shall they stay connected with you on a more current basis? Well, um, Gold Money, um, goldmoney.com, hit the research tab, and I write an article every Thursday, um, and I do a market report on the Friday, so you'll get all that there. And um, if you'll move to open an account, we will welcome you with, uh, with open arms, and we can buy just the same as you as, as you can. Um, uh, you know, you can buy um, gold and silver platinum group metals to store them in um, a fully insured vault. Uh, that's basically what we do. And for those of you who want to make sure you don't miss a single episode with Alistair or any of our other headline guests, make sure that you get on our free mailing list by going to libertyandfinance.com. That's libertyandfinance, all spelled out, all one word, libertyandfinance.com. Put in your name, your email address, click submit, and then make sure you confirm on the confirming email. Then you're in. You'll get one email per day in your inbox with our latest interviews and any specials. Alistair, on behalf of all of our guests, I couldn't get to 90% of the questions that were submitted during uh, ahead of your arrival here, but we always appreciate your presence with us, helping us to keep ahead of, of what's going on in our financial lives, and just thank you for joining us again on Liberty and Finance. That's very much my pleasure, DK. Miles Franklin Precious Metals is one of America's oldest and most trusted bullion dealers. Miles Franklin is A-plus rated and accredited by the Better Business Bureau, licensed and bonded, and has zero complaints ever registered. Here at Liberty and Finance, we are licensed brokers with Miles Franklin. To order, simply call us, discuss your needs, and we will let you know our live inventory, prices, and availability, and lock in your order over the phone. Once your order is locked, the price is held for you regardless of market fluctuations, and the metals are reserved for you awaiting your settled payment. Within one business day of ordering, you will receive an email invoice detailing the order and payment instructions. Miles Franklin accepts payments by Bankwire, ACH or electronic check, money order, check mailed priority mail, and cryptocurrency. The fastest forms of payments are Bankwire and cryptocurrency. Upon settled payment, metals will ship out within three to five business days. You will receive tracking information via email. Domestic shipping charges are $15 for any order under 500 ounces of silver or 10 ounces of gold. For orders larger than that, domestic shipping is free. The package will be double boxed, fully insured, and labeled discreetly, with no indication of the contents inside. For your privacy, the name Miles Franklin will not even be on the package. To talk to myself, Elijah, my brother Kaiser, or my father Dunnigan, call 1-888-81-LIBERTY. That's 1-888-815-4237.